Section 23 of the Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Rome by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 18, Part 2 The Wives of Constantius. We find Eusebia established in the court at Milan at the time when the heads of the last of Constantius's rivals are falling. When Gallus has disappeared, he proudly takes the title of Lord of the World and endeavors to live up to it amid his company of eunuchs and fawning attendants. In the hands of those astute and concordant schemers, the weak and vain monarch was easily persuaded to arrive at decisions which he attributed to his own judgment. And it is perhaps the most indulgent plea that we can make for him, that he was governed by a power so subtle and insinuating that he never perceived it. The high merit of a scrupulous chastity is claimed for him, but the monastic writer Zonaris somewhat detracts from this by affirming that his coldness deprived him of a dynasty, and forced his beautiful and accomplished wife into a fatal decline. His piety, at least, might be praised, but it rested on a basis of Arian creed, and is exposed to the scorn of the Orthodox, who called him Antichrist. We may concur in the strictures of Zonaris so far as to admit that Eusebia cannot have been happy in his court. The eunuch Eusebius, who had tried and executed Gallus, was the most powerful man in the empire. Ammianus observes, with heavy irony, that Constantius was believed to be not without influence with his emasculated chamberlain. A hierarchy of lesser, but hardly less corrupt, officials led up to this favored minister, and Ammianus, from personal acquaintance with the court, assures us that their rapacity and unscrupulousness grew with the power of Constantius. A Persian officer, Mercurius, had the nickname of the Count of Dreams, from the skill with which he could make the most innocent fancies of the night bear a treasonable complexion and bring destruction and spoilation on the dreamer. Paulus, who had risen from the lowly position of table-steward, was called the chain, because of the art with which he could involve a man in a charge of plotting. Torture and confiscation became common experiences once more, and men began to shrink from even the most innocent conversation. This unpleasant tenor of the imperial life at Milan was relieved by the great controversy of the Arians and Athanasians, which was brought to Italy for decision. How Constantius and his officers induced the Latin bishops to condemn Athanasius in 355 by stroking their bellies instead of laying the rod on their backs, to use the vigorous phrase of St. Hilary, does not concern us, but it is interesting to see how Eusebia came in contact with the prelates. When the Roman bishop Liberius, bravely for a time, incurred exile rather than condemn Athanasius, Eusebius sent him a sum of money. He returned it with the suggestion that her husband might find it useful for his troops or his Arian bishops. 
a new power, besides that of eunuchs, was rising. Suides preserves a story that may be given here, though it may or may not refer to this council. As the bishops, he says, came to the town where the court was, for the purpose of holding a council, they called to salute the empress. Leontius, bishop of Tripoli, refused to visit her, and she sent word that, if he would call, she would give him the funds to build a large church. The saintly prelate replied that he would condescend to visit her, if he were assured that she would receive him with fitting respect, if, he explained, she would rise from her throne at his entrance, bend for his benediction, and remain standing while he sat until he permitted her to resume her seat. In the same year, 355, however, a more pleasant diversion alleviated the weariness of Eusebia, and another empress is introduced to our notice. We have already said that the unhappy Gallus had for companion in his Cappadocian jail a young half-brother of the name of Julian. Imbibing his early culture at the alternate hands of Bishop Eusebius and the philosophical eunuch Mardonius, Julian had come to prefer the Greek culture of the latter to the theological lore of the prelate. He had come out untainted from the lonely fortress at Messalum, and had passed to Constantinople, and then to Nicomedia. There the distinguished pagan Libanius attracted his allegiance, and from the three years in which he studied at Nicomedia, his mind was wholly given to the older culture. However much he might be compelled to dissemble his aversion for the new religion. After the execution of Gallus, he was brought to Milan, with growing apprehension, he awaited the decision of the eunuch, chamberlain, and cook, who, he says, directed the bloody counsels of Constantius. But he found an unexpected and powerful friend in the empress. It seems clear that Eusebia first espoused his cause in a pure feeling of humanity. The officials had impeached the innocent youth of twenty-three or twenty-four, chiefly on the ground of having visited Gallus, and his life was gravely threatened. Eusebia threw all her influence in the scale against the malignant officials, and though they prevented Constantius from hearing him, she saved his life. He was housed in the suburbs of Milan, and was taken one day to see Eusebia. I seemed to see, as in a temple, the image of the goddess of wisdom, he afterwards wrote, in his letter to the Athenians. The splendid figure of the beautiful empress can easily be imagined to have made a remarkable impression on the bookish youth. Eusebia was differently, but favorably impressed. Julian was a well-made youth, of moderate stature and broad shoulders. He had the soft curly hair of his brother, a straight nose, large mouth, and brilliant eyes. The humane feeling of the empress assumed a more tender and personal complexion, and she set to work to make Julian's fortune. He was sent for a time to Como, and as her influence prevailed, recalled to Milan, and permitted to reply to his accusers before the emperor. He was then permitted to retire to his mother's small estate in Bithynia, and Eusebia induced Constantius to impose on him the pleasant sentence of an exile to Athens. 
from the beloved schools of Athens, he was, after a few months, recalled to Milan, to hear the astounding news that he was to receive the purple robe of Caesar and the hand of the emperor's sister, Helena. He shrank in tears from the political world that opened to him, but Eusebia tactfully overcame his opposition and guided his conduct. Her eunuchs ran continually between the palace and his lodging. The beard and cloak of the philosopher were laid aside, and Julian blushed to find himself accoutred in the splendid trappings of a commander. The jeers and intrigues of the court were at length silenced, and on November 6, 355, he stood on a lofty platform before the troops, while Constantius invested him with the purple, and exhorted him to sustain the honor of Rome. The marriage with Helena followed, and in December Julian and his bride, with a valuable collection of books as the gift of Eusebia, set out for Gaul. Julian never saw Eusebia again, and cannot have had the least correspondence with her. Even in Milan he had, on reflection, torn up a letter in which he modestly wished his patroness the reward of a succession of children. On his side there was nothing but a pure feeling of gratitude and reverence. She was, says Zosimus, a woman of erudition and prudence above her sex, a shining example of spiritual and bodily beauty, according to Ammianus. She had most probably saved his life, and most certainly made his fortune. But it is believed by many writers that Eusebius' feeling for Julian was of a less ethereal nature. Gaetano Negri, whose life of Julian is one of the most distinguished biographies of a Roman emperor, justly repudiates the suggestion of improper feeling on her part and it is a superfluous inference. But one may, without casting the least reflection on her virtue, hesitate to think that the only link between them was a sympathy of culture. Such sympathy we may well assume between a cultivated Greek lady and an ardent Hellenist. But so cold and spiritual a relation may very naturally and pardonably have been strengthened by a warmer feeling." Julian had no sensuous attractiveness for a beautiful woman. But his manly person and character, his vast superiority to the crowd of ignoble parasites she daily encountered, and to her weak and mediocre husband, must have excited an admiration less purely intellectual than an appreciation of his learning. The person of Flavia Julia Helena remains faint and elusive in the ample chronicle of the time, she was much older than Julian, who was in his twenty-fifth year, while Helena cannot have been less than thirty. She had not been previously married, Ammianus says, and the long maidenhood would not tend to make her attractive. The marriage was arranged by Eusebia in the political interest of Julian, and it probably retained the chill that a mariage de convenance with such a disparity of age would naturally bear. In Julian's abundant and largely autobiographical writings she is barely mentioned. It was the marriage of an old maid for the Roman world, with an austere, if conscientious, philosopher. The gradual discovery of Julian's secret loyalty to the old gods would not make their relations more cordial. 
We may therefore regret that the single line of inquiry which we pursue will compel us to leave almost unnoticed the brilliant episode of the reign of Julian. The more liberal taste of our time has removed the violent and conflicting colors which the partisan writers of the fourth century laid upon the portrait of Julian. To Gregory of Nazianzum he was a faint impersonation of Antichrist, to the pagan writers a modest incorporation of Apollo. In modern history he is a most conscientious thinker, a humane and unselfish ruler, a very capable commander, a conceited and unattractive personality. His character, in spite of the shade that clings to it, as a trace of the enforced dissimulation of his early years, is great. His ability and achievements are just entitled to be called brilliant. Helena and Eusebia appear little in the years that follow, and we must narrate the necessary events very briefly. The frame of mind of which Constantius sent Julian to Gaul as Caesar is not at all clear. The frontier was obliterated, the barbarians overrunning the country in formidable strength. The military force inadequate, except with fine control. Some writers are disposed to think that Constantius was sending his cousin to death. At all events, the faith of Eusebia, that her young and shrinking scholar would surmount these difficulties, was great, and it was rewarded. Julian at once discovered a bravery that none had suspected. He cut his way through a region occupied by the barbarians, surveyed the devastated frontier, and passed the first year of his inexperience with only one small disaster. The difficulty of his task seemed greater when, in the winter, he was besieged in Sens, and the commander of the troops in the neighborhood refused to go to his relief. In the trouble that followed, Eusebia obtained for him the full command of the troops which had been withheld from him, and from that moment he entered on a career of victory. It is probable that Helena did not share his peril in this winter, 356 to 357. We find her at Rome in April, with Eusebia and Constantius, and a curious story of their relations is put before us. Constantius in that month bestowed his first and only visit upon the ancient capital of the empire. Sitting in a chariot that glittered with golden gems, preceded by officers whose spears bore silken dragons, so fashioned as to hiss in the breeze on their golden and bejeweled tips, followed by his legions in battle array, their breastplates and shields gleaming in the sun, the emperor passed with affected indifference between the dense lines of spectators and the great monuments of Rome, though both the vast crowds and the ancient structures, shining with a beauty that his decaying empire could no longer produce, wrung from him in private an expression of astonishment. Eusebia had invited Helena to join them in this visit to Rome. At a later point in his narrative, Ammianus makes a reference to this visit that has perplexed every thoughtful reader. When he comes to record the death of Helena, he says that it was due to a poisonous drug administered to her by Eusebia during the visit to Rome to prevent her from having children, 
and that in the previous year, when she was pregnant, Eusebius sent a midwife to destroy the child under pretense of attending her. It does not seem to occur to Gibbon and other historians who adopt this story that it suggests in Eusebia a character in complete contradiction to that ascribed to her by Ammianus himself and every other Roman writer. A jealousy of Helena, whether on account of her own childlessness or on account of Julian, that could force her to such a malignant course is utterly inconsistent with the description we have quoted of her. The story is peremptorily rejected by Miss Gardner and Signor Negri, and its discord with all that we know of Eusebia is noticed by most writers. One is tempted to inquire if it may not be an interpolation, but the text of Ammianus lends no support whatever to the idea. We can only suppose that Ammianus incorporated a piece of idle gossip and was inattentive to its inconsistency with his high moral praise of Eusebia. Many legends, we shall see, sprang up after the death of Helena. Some of them assailed Julian, and are easily traced to their source. It is possible that the courtiers who opposed Eusebia, and doubtless misinterpreted her zeal for Julian, started the rumor, and Ammianus heard it in Italy years afterwards. It is a mere feather in the scale against the authorities for the high character of the empress. From Rome, Constantius was summoned to repel fresh invasions in the east, and Helena returned to Gaul. She remains unnoticed until the spring of the year 360, and we will not follow Julian through the brilliant campaigns in which he reduced the most powerful tribes of the barbarians, and restored peace and prosperity to his stricken province. But while Julian succeeded in the west, the campaign of the troops of Constantius in the east won for the emperor few laurels, and entailed grave disasters. The intriguers now doubled their charges against Julian, and plausibly suggested that he would be prompted to claim a higher title than that of Caesar. It was decided to reduce his power by removing a number of his finest legions to the east. Julian was in winter quarters at Paris, as Lutetia was beginning to be called, when the grave summons reached him. The island on the Seine, which now bears the cathedral, had from early times offered a secure settlement, and as the province became more settled, the adjoining slope, where the Latin quarter of a later age began, was occupied with a palace, an amphitheatre, and a few of the customary institutions of a Roman town. Julian loved the little settlement on the broad silvery river, surrounded by dense forests, and he was spending the winter there, attending with equal judgment and humanity to the civil welfare of his province, when the officers of Constantius arrived. He has described at length the painful perplexity into which he was thrown. Not only would the sacrifice of four of his best legions seriously impair his strength, but they were local troops and had enlisted only for local service. He decided to obey, and ordered the troops to prepare for departure. An angry murmur arose from the camps as the men reflected on the fate that might befall their families in the ill-protected country. Julian provided that their wives and children should accompany them, 
and they gathered at Paris for the dismissal. In affecting language, the Caesar conveyed to them his thanks and his admonitions, entertained their officers at a banquet, and retired to his palace. The sincerity of Julian has been made the theme of an acrid discussion between his violent critics and his resolute admirers. But we may, without serious reflection on his character, doubt whether he entirely wished the troops to go. Such an order, from such a source, would plausibly relieve a Caesar from obedience. Only excessive virtue, or uncertain prospect of the issue, would counsel a man to obey it. Both feelings were at work in Julian's mind, and there is not ground to accuse his later account of hypocrisy. But we may surmise that, at the time, his decision was accompanied by unsanctioned hopes and dreams of a more satisfactory issue. In those days of anxious deliberation, his imagination, however he might curb it, must have depicted for him the revival of culture, the arrest of superstition, the purification of the court and empire that would follow his elevation to the throne. He retired to his palace, where, as he incidentally observed somewhere, Helena lived with him. But shortly after midnight a great tumult arose from the direction of the camp, and from the windows one could see the troops, the light of their torches gleaming on their drawn swords coming toward the palace. The doors were at once closed, and Julian refused to show himself, but the cry of Imperator easily penetrated to his ears. On the following morning they broke into the palace and forcibly conducted Julian to the camp. He resisted, threatened, and supplicated, but the troops were consulting their own interest, now gravely threatened by their revolt, and there was no other course possible but to consent. He was raised up on a shield, and the legions broke into a frenzy of delight at their escape from exile. A diadem only was needed to complete his new dignity, and Helena, who was present, seems to have offered a pearl necklace of hers. Julian refused to wear the feminine adornment, and an officer provided a rich golden collar studded with gems for the coronation. With the struggle that followed, and the dramatic chapter that opened in the annals of Rome, we have no concern. Both our empresses die before a decisive stage is reached. The date of the death of Eusebia is not known. It was some time between the beginning of 359 and the middle of 360, as Constantius married again toward the end of 360. She is said to have died of an inflammation of the womb brought on by taking drugs for procuring fertility. That such drugs were familiar at the time, and that the empress would naturally try their effect, we readily admit. But we need not entirely overlook the statement of Zunaris, that the conduct of her husband and the unhappiness of her circumstances brought the beautiful Greek into a decline. Had she shared the throne with Julian, and adopted his views, the story of Europe might have run differently." That Helena was one to the views of Julian is improbable. She would no doubt discover soon after her marriage that he secretly cherished the cult of the old gods. From his first month in Gaul he had with one assistant set up a private shrine to them. 
There are coins that bear the names of Julian and Helena, and the figures of Isis and Serapis, but they yield no inference. Nor can we learn the attitude of Helena in the struggle between her husband and her brother. The complete silence of Julian suggests that she remained moodily silent or hostile. Several months were spent in negotiation with Constantius. In December, Julian celebrated at Vienne the fifth anniversary of his promotion, and wore the splendid diadem of an emperor, as he presided at the games and exercises. In the midst of the festivities, Helena died. Zonaris, who also gives a ridiculous rumor that she had been divorced by Julian, says that she died in childbirth. We are tempted to think that the painful development of her unprosperous marriage weighed heavily on her, and her pregnancy had a premature and fatal delivery. Her remains were conveyed to Rome, and laid by those of her sister, Constantina. We need not notice the charge of one of Constantius's officers that Julian had poisoned her, and paid the guilty physician with his mother's jewels. Julian honestly professes no grief at her death, and he never married again. A third empress makes a brief appearance at the time when Helena passes away. Passing from his long campaign on the Danube to the stricken regions of the east, Constantius had, toward the close of 360, married for the third time at Antioch. Maxima Faustina, his third empress, had little time to make an impression on history, if she were capable of it. As Constantius at length set out from Antioch in the autumn of 361 to crush the mutiny in the west, as he affected to regard it, he contracted a fever and died before he reached the European frontier. Faustina was left with the unborn wife of the future Emperor Gretian, and will come to our notice again. The Roman Empire was once more united under a strong, upright, and accomplished ruler. But Julian was now wedded to his ideals, and as no woman shared his ascetic life and arduous labors, we must pass over the reforms, the campaigns, and the religious struggles of the next two years. End of section 23